I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. This is God's Word. You may be seated. There is a story that unfolds near the end of the first century when Christianity had spread into and rooted itself in the cities. It's the story of how God will help His people be faithful lights. How He will help them shine brightly into those congested dark arenas. It's also the story of a man, a man whom darkness swept up in order to exile him on an island. But before we consider this story, let's go to our Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Perhaps many times when we pray to You, Father, we may not take the time to, to really start to think and to realize what such an awesome God You are and that we are mere creatures that You have made and yet love so much. Father, we acknowledge that You are holy, that You are righteous, and that You are loving. Father, we acknowledge that You are worthy of all devotion that we could give You. We pray for eyes that can see and ears that can hear that we might understand what it means to offer our lives before You as living sacrifices. Father, we ask that You keep the evil one from us, how he would try to sidetrack us discourage us, tear down what You are doing. And Father, we pray that Your will may be done in heaven and on earth. We ask all of these things in Your name of Your Son. Amen. The events of our story unfold sometime in the 90s, perhaps close to 95 A.D. And what this means chronologically is that Jesus had died and been resurrected probably a little more than 60 years earlier. 
the Apostle Paul had already traveled through some of the cities that we'll be looking at tonight. And he had traveled through them about 40 years earlier. And the Apostle Paul is already dead about 20 years when this story unfolds. Not only had Christianity been introduced to these cities in Asia, but at times its impact had been substantial. For example, remember how in Ephesus, Paul had taught for two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus? Luke tells us that as Paul was preaching for those two years there in Ephesus at that lecture hall, that the message of the Lord, it went into all of Asia. The whole providence is going to be impacted by God's Word as a result of what Paul did there. Remember also toward his stay at the, uh, there in Ephesus, that the fear of the Lord's name came upon the whole city. The reason was, there were some Jewish exorcists who were going around saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and they would say to an evil spirit, come out. Well, they came to one evil spirit, this man with an evil spirit, and, and were trying to exorcise this evil spirit. An evil spirit responded and said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And then the man jumped on these exorcists and beat them thoroughly, and they ran naked out of the house bleeding. And because of the, the power that was realized the people realized the power associated with the name of Jesus and, and that Paul was preaching this one. The city responds. The message spreads what happened. The city responds. And we're told that a large number of people came forward confessing their sins. They will burn their sorcery books. They calculate the value of this pile as people repent and confess and they throw their sorcery books in the pile, it comes to 50,000 silver drachmas. That's equivalent, a drachma is equivalent to a common laborer's day wage. That's 50,000 day wages. A significant amount of money. And people are burning these very valuable texts of power that control life. No, the gospel has made an impact in various cities and, and Ephesus was one of them. But this is also going to lead Demetrius after he sees all of this happening and he being a, as a silversmith, idols, little silver replicas of, of the, the idol of the great goddess Diana, they're not going to be selling so well. And so for economic reasons, he inspires a riot against Paul and people flood out of the city of Ephesus into the 25,000-seat auditorium that they have cut out of the side of a mountain there. And for two hours they chant, Great is the God of the Ephesians, Artemis. Yes, Christianity had made an impact, and darkness had pushed back. The advance of God's kingdom had also come at a cost in those years between when Christ died and this event of our story, there had been personal cost as the kingdom spread. 
We don't know much of the details, but Paul is going to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. We can picture Paul in the arena fighting wild beasts because he is a Christian proclaiming Christ. And of course, it's been three decades earlier from our story when Nero unleashed persecution against Christianity, against Christians in the city of Rome. And in Rome, he would even take Christians and and coat them with tar and light them up in his garden to light his garden in that night. Among putting them also in the arena. Our story begins as political and religious forces once again seek to squelch the gospel's light in the cities. Tradition says that John was living in Ephesus. And this aged disciple has been caught by the authorities. He's been taken and dumped on an island in exile. And this is how he puts it in his words. I, John, your brother, and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. How long had, had John been living on this island before the events of our story unfold? How many Sundays had come and gone before he heard that voice? We don't know. What we do know is what transpired. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John will turn around. And as he looks behind him, he sees seven lamps, which represent, he discovers, seven churches. These seven churches. But even more significantly, in the midst of these lamps, he sees a very powerful figure, one like a son of man. And it's going to cause him to go limp and to fall as though dead before this powerful figure. He describes him as having a long robe and a golden sash. His head and hair are white as snow. His eyes like a fiery flame. His voice thundering like many waters. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. John will come to learn that these seven stars represent the messengers or or angels of those seven different churches. And there is this sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. As we look at this description, we, we recognize it as being very similar to the description of the man dressed in linen that had overwhelmed Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. Daniel, too, had fallen like dead before him. But this one, like a son of man, a powerful one, says to John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the one who lives. I was dead, but now, look, I am alive forever and ever. 
and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you saw, what is, and what will be after these things. This powerful figure never calls himself Christ, never calls himself Jesus. But very clearly, John has fallen like dead before the risen Lord in all of his splendor and power and authority. His word wields ultimate authority. He had died, but now he lives forever. He holds the power over death and the realm of the dead. As will become clearer later, this risen Lord really does stand in the midst of His churches. He knows what each church is doing or not doing. He knows whether they're being faithful or whether they're being corrupted by the influences of the world around them. And He will give a message to each of those seven churches describing what He knows about their, their highs, their lows, and what is needed. John's responsibility is to write what he is about to see so that the seven churches can know what is going to about to be shown to him. But there's something about these seven churches. These seven churches are so very different from each other. They possess Christians of many different varying qualities and, and spiritual um, states. They live in different types of cities. And you might say, so what? But you go to Communication 101, and one of the first things you learn is consider your audience. You know, consider who you're talking to and tailor the message for them. Give them something that's going to be specific for them, that will motivate them. And yet, God is going to provide both strong and weak Christians the same motivation for serving. It's going to be the same message, the same motivation why they should serve. And it's applicable to all. It's applicable to all these Christians regardless of their setting, regardless of where they find themselves or whether they've done well or poorly in the past. What could God show John that would benefit each church? Diverse as they were, to be light in the city, his yeast that would transform their environment, his faithful servants regardless of their own current sp spiritual state or what type of city they might be in? Consider the magnitude of what God is doing in motivating such a diverse group of Christians facing distinct environments. Take Ephesus. Like Houston, Ephesus was a seaport and a gateway for business, travel, and influence into the whole Roman province of Asia. Even today, the, the ruins of that ancient city testify to the opulence and the power that the wealthy of that city had. The church in Ephesus was a survivor, and the Lord will praise her for two qualities. She had steadfastly endured through all those decades. She had persevered. And the Lord will also praise her for being concerned about false doctrine that had led her to test and to subsequently discover some false teacher. She was concerned about the message. However, she also had a problem. 
The Lord told John to report to her, but I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. What does it mean to, that they had departed from their first love? Well, a number of ideas have been proposed. They, what was this love? Was it love of Christ, love for the brethren, love for humanity? The truth is that these can't be separated. For when we love Jesus and we're drawing close to Jesus and to his message, he teaches us to love each other as well as to love the greater community. John himself will point out in 1 John that we cannot truthfully claim to love God if we do not love our fellow human being. And so tied with this love, he says, do the deed you did at first. If, if they're going to love, then they're going to be engaged in doing. Reminds me of being engaged in ministry and magnifying the Lord and spreading his message. Or, or take the city of Smyrna, very different from Ephesus in some ways. This ancient city began about a thousand years before Christ. It was competing with Ephesus for the premier city of, of uh, the Roman province of Asia. It, it was a handsome city, known as the most beautiful of all cities under the sun. But the church in Smyrna was so very different from the church in Ephesus. The Smyrna church suffered from poverty and and had a history of being slandered by their opponents. It was, a, it was a church, though, where every indication is that it was spiritually healthy and had a, a spiritual vitality. Then there's the church at Sardis and the city there. This church at Sardis, in contrast to, to the healthy church at Smyrna, had the reputation of being alive. What did this mean? I mean, if you went to the church of Smyrna, they were the ones who were alive. Did that mean that they were a big church? And as a big church, they were alive? Did, did that mean they had a lot of activities going on? A lot, there was a lot of movement, a lot of things, a lot of happening. Is that what it meant to be alive? I don't know. But they have a reputation for whatever reason for being alive. <coughs> What we do know is that the Lord looked at them and said that spiritually they were just about dead. And that only a few Christians within the church had not soiled themselves with the corruption of what was around them. <clears throat> this was a city perched some 1,500 feet above the valley floor. Perpendicular cliffs on all three sides of the city made it like a fortress. Had a rich history filled with famous names from Croesus, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and Xerxes. All had been there. By the late first century, though, the glory had long departed. And it was just Sardis. Or take one other city, just as an example of the differences between these, Laodicea. <clears throat> one of the jewels of the fertile Lycus River Valley. This banking city 
was renowned for its high-quality wool and medicinal products. Business there was good, and the church shared in that material prosperity. They were part of the city. They were doing well financially. In fact, the Lord will describe their self-perception as, I am rich and have acquired wealth and need nothing. This was a church that had entered into a comfortable Christianity. It neither burned with passion for the Lord, nor for His work, nor had they coldly rejected the Lord. They were just comfortable Christians, living and going to church. Simply put, they were lukewarm complacent. And so we find John on the Isle of Patmos, and one, one Sunday morning, or some Sunday, during a, a Sunday, this trumpet-like voice is behind him and he turns and sees the risen Lord. And God is about to reveal something to him that he is to relate to all these churches in spite of their differences, in spite of the situations where they find themselves that can be a blessing and can help all of them be God's people in the cities where they find themselves. What could be capable of assisting both the strong and the complacent? Both those struggling just simply to make ends meet and those wealthy. Those who were already faithful and those who were stained by the world. So that all of them might live as God's people within their respective cities. But what God is about to do He had done centuries earlier. He had done it also for a man in another city. And he wanted this man in a city to serve him in that city. And the cities of Judea. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the sovereign master seated on a high, elevated throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. Who did Isaiah see? He saw one whose hem or train filled the temple. Now, the longer the hem or the train, the more important the individual. And this one fills the entire temple, fills the space. There is no other one. He is the only one. He's one surrounded by seraphs as he sits on the throne. And they're continually praising God. And as these seraphs praise God, their voices shake the doorposts. As powerful as a seraph is, this creature is praising one far greater and far more powerful seated on the throne. With two wings, they're shielding their faces from God's presence as they proclaim two truths about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. God is completely pure. 
He is holy. In the Hebraic, this is the superlative when you say something three times. And what's particularly interesting is that in describing God, this is the only superlative used. There's many descriptions of God, many characteristics of God. God is love. God is just. And God is righteous. God is holy. But as God is only proclaimed with the Hebrew superlative as being holy, holy, holy. This is the characteristic that is put out powerfully there in God's presence. The second truth that they proclaim is God's majestic splendor fills the entire earth. All of creation and God's mighty acts that He has done reveal His glory. Now, Isaiah had gone to the temple, then he saw this. But who had Isaiah been before he went to this temple? We don't know for sure. Jewish tradition suggests that he was part of a, the royal family, had royal blood. Regardless of who he had been, in the blink of an eye, Isaiah was transformed. He's changed as he catches a glimpse of God's glory. You know, as long as Isaiah would view himself as just a person among people, maybe compare himself with others, you can feel pretty good about that. You know, I can feel pretty good comparing myself with, with people, and, and you can feel pretty good about comparing yourself with people. That's what people sometimes do. But the instant that Isaiah encounters God's holiness, his self-perception is forever changed. And he says, woe am I. I am destroyed for my lips are contaminated by sin. And I live among people whose lips are contaminated by sin. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord who commands armies. For the first time, Isaiah really understood who God is and God's holiness. And under the gaze of God's holiness, he clearly sees who he is. And he realizes his own great need. But not only is he ruined and destroyed, but all the people around him, those in the city, they're ruined and they're destroyed. Judea is ruined and destroyed. His neighbors and fellow countrymen. Well, God in His mercy does something next. He, a seraph is sent, and, and the seraph takes a hot coal, puts it to Isaiah's lips, touches it, cleanses him, forgives him of his sin. And then the sovereign master asks, Whom will I send? Who will go on our behalf? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. God motivated Isaiah to serve Him in Jerusalem and to serve the cities of Judea by granting Isaiah a glimpse of His holiness and splendor. See, accurately perceiving God's holiness, His splendor, places our lives and service into proper perspective. And as long as we're just living life, as long as I live my life and I look at, oh, go get the groceries... Go do this. People coming, people going. A to-do list of things to do. Keep me busy. Work. 
The next item on the list, life has a particular look. The people have a particular look. Oh, here's the good guys. Here's the good people. They're the ones that are polite to me and kind to me as I'm checking out my groceries. This fellow over here, he's a bit rude, crude, not so good. And that's how we can look at life. But when we get a glimpse of God's glory, we can't look at life like that anymore. We come away realizing that we are ruined. We need God's mercy and forgiveness. And then we realize that all those who live around us, they're ruined. And they too need God's mercy and forgiveness. And God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? Who will make a difference among all of the tragedy? And then we say, here we are. Send us. Because we've seen a glimpse of the glory of God. Until people see a glimpse of the glory of God, I seriously doubt that they'll go. How do those respond? They go. So to return to our story with John, on the Isle of Patmos and the loud trumpet voice behind him and he turns and he's told to write down what he's about to see. And he's supposed to give this message of what he sees to the seven churches. He says, immediately I was in the spirit and a throne was standing in heaven with someone seated on it. And the one seated on it was like Jasper and Carnelian in appearance and a rainbow looking like it was made of emerald encircled the throne. From the throne came out flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne. And in front of the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. As I read this, as we listen to this reading, we can sense John's struggle to try to adequately describe heavenly realities with with earthly descriptions. The words just don't measure up. It's sort of like emerald. It's sort of like carnelian. It's sort of like crystal. The best way I can describe it. And around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. They never rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful, who was and who is, and who is still to come. And how do those who are around this throne respond in God's presence? They throw themselves down before the throne. They worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they acknowledge that their Lord and their God is worthy of devotion. He is worthy of all that they can do for Him. Whatever that can be in in praise. He is worthy of devotion. When we know who God is, when we grasp at least a small glimpse of God's holiness, it evokes devotion from deep within us. And on the island of Patmos, 
John, God granted John a glimpse into heaven in order to help Christians persevere in living for their God. In living for their God in those cities where they found themselves. You know, this year our theme is City Lights. Ministry. Magnify. Message. In the coming weeks and months, Mark is going to be describing different ways for us to serve God. To, to be devoted to God in how we live. By ministering to this community. By magnifying God through our lives. By carrying God's message into the city. And tomorrow night, we have the opportunity to refresh our skills to communicate God's message. In, or to acquire new ones in the Mustard Seed Fast Track at 6.30. You see, what we're engaged in, this is not our mission. We didn't make it up. We're not in control of what is to be done. The mission does not originate from us. What this means is that we do not have the luxury to sit around and to decide whether or not we need to be engaged in God's mission to the world. It means that we do not enter into a brainstorming session to decide what we think is a great idea, whatever that might be. No, we look to what God is doing and what God is wanting to do with us and our lives and how he wants to shape us and mold us to be his yeast, to be his light, to be his servants in the city. The mission for our lives comes from the one seated on the throne. And those who catch a glimpse of God's holiness and splendor will likewise say, here am I, send me as we throw ourselves before the feet of our God. A little bit later in Revelation, we learn about the slain lamb, the blood of the lamb, and those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Jesus died so that none of us need to find ourselves in the presence of a holy God, suddenly filled with terror, woe am I. He died so that each one of us can be made holy. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 talks about His sacrifice and His blood, that it is making perfect forever those who are being made holy. Leviticus points out that we cannot make ourselves holy. Leviticus points out it is God who makes you holy. And there in Hebrews, again, the message that God is making us holy. But for us to be His holy people, we have to come to the Lord and respond to Him. Die to ourselves. Repent from the way that we have lived. Be buried with Him in baptism and then raised up by God's power into a new life, to be a new creature that He has created 
to do good works that He's created for us to do in advance. We have a mission. We have a way that we need to live as God's people. If there's anyone this evening who needs to...